Hello and welcome to another episode of Business Bites. I'm your host, Gary Kelly, and today we're heading all the way over to Philadelphia, where I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Chris Joyce, which is a real Irish name, but I don't think you're Irish, though. I'm not Irish, but if you ask my father-in-law where I'm from, he'll tell you County Mayo. Uh, He just keeps it in the family there, so he makes me say that. That's the next county above us here in Galway, and you're married to an Irish woman. Definitely. Hardcore Irish. (laughs) Redhead Irish psychologist. Absolutely Irish. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Chris, I was just blown away by the information about you when we were doing our research. You're a founder of 24 companies in high-tech consumer goods, health manufacturing, in every sort of industry. And there's various information and stats we have on you and how the work and portfolios that you're involved in are just global. But first off, just that alone, 24 companies. Like, is your mind going 100 miles a minute every day? Uh, kind of. Uh, it's more like I latch onto a problem uh, and I've got to solve it. So it's not like I'm doing 20 different problems or things at once. Uh, I like to go ahead and a, a problem just kind of like attaches it to me or I get kind of fed up with something and I have to solve it. And, and that's what I do. So I go from one problem to the next to the next and I try not to do the same type of business twice. And that's why I have so many companies in the past and what I've built up. And not doing the same company twice, is that out of a fear of boredom or is it more competition with a company you already have? Oh, no, I think it's just, it it actually definitely is boredom, but I think it's more of an interest level. It actually keeps it exciting. It's something different. Uh, And after you do that many companies, you see certain patterns and certain things that are always the same, whatever company it is, it doesn't matter. But I just like creating something out of nothing and see my idea come to life. It literally gets me off. You know, when it comes to real estate, does absolutely nothing. When it comes to, let's say, stocks or value investing, uh, standard uh, trading, it does absolutely nothing for me. Uh, The creation of a company to go ahead and solve a fundamental problem uh, that I think is a, a damn good market, that really gets me off. So give me an example of a problem there that was niggling away and you set up a company to solve it. Sure. I I was on a low carbohydrate diet for years and I literally woke up one day and I said, you know what? I've had enough of bacon and eggs and steak. I really want a a blueberry muffin. There was no such thing as a low carb blueberry muffin at the time. And so that set me out on a path. And sure enough, we ended up creating the largest low carb manufacturer in the world at the time. And so out of nothing, I had nothing either. I had literally 1200 bucks to my name, uh, but I got so frustrated uh, with it that I'm like, somebody's got to create this. Why not me? I'll just go ahead and create it. And sure enough, uh, three months later, we actually had our first version of a low carbohydrate muffin. Extremely good. It was a great product. So you were doing the ketogenic diet, was it? That, at that time, it wasn't even called keto. It was just called straight low carb. It was the days of Atkins when, you know, when he was uh, the king of the top of the hill and everything else. And right after that, well, I should say before that, it was called the pilot's diet. And that was where you had uh, steaks and martinis. I guess pilots had steaks and martinis back then. Uh, so there's always been a different variant of it at some point in time. But I was on low carb at the time. That's what it's called. I now do carnivore. But at that time, it was low carb. Just do it that way. And it was easy. So you want to develop a low carb blueberry muffin. Right. Like what's the next step? Like how do you, I mean, you need to know how to make it. You need to know how to distribute it, but you also need to get funded and people on board to believe in this dream. No, you don't. All right. So this is the way that most people think. And this is the way that most 
business creation, the process is thought of, okay? But, and I'm not going to curse in a way, but it's ass backwards. It's literally the fundamentally incorrect way of doing it, okay? So for me, whenever I've had a problem, I've never been the person to actually solve that problem. So I'm not the person that formulates the low carb, you know, thing. I'm not the the guy that goes ahead and codes and figures out the solution of it, but I'm the guy that identifies the problem that has market viability. So how do you start it? How do you get going? Well, the first thing you say to yourself is, okay, well, I need to go ahead and have this product. First of all, whatever that may be, that low carb muffin, let's not worry about branding. Let's not worry about distribution, manufacturing or anything else. Let's deal with that first problem. So that first problem involved me going ahead and contacting more than 500 food chemists that told me it couldn't be done, it shouldn't be done, it wouldn't be done. And this was this was, you know, a while back when low carb was not really mainstream or and people didn't really believe necessarily in the science of it. I had PhDs tell me to go F myself because it was so uh, polarizing the idea of low carb and low carb products and everything else. But I found this one guy after 500, I swear to God, after 500 food chemists that told me, sure, I'll help you. And it was the type of thing that you say to yourself, oh, well, I need money to go ahead and pay a food chemist, or I need, you know, these funds to get started and whatever else it may be. No, what you need to do is have a fundamental belief in yourself and what you're doing. And so you just convince and talk to that person and bring them in for equity. And so sure enough, I I said to that person, I go, hey, let's go ahead and create this. He took a piece of the company. I took a piece of the company. And 90 days later, we had a low carbohydrate blueberry muffin and six other flavors. And sure enough, that scientist that did that, you know, years later after we had this huge company, I said, why did you help me? I mean, we didn't even meet. We didn't have video. We didn't meet hand to hand. He lives 600 miles away and answered my email of all things. And sure enough, he said, because you asked for help. And so in a way, just asking people for help and involving them in the beginning stages, that really is the first step of starting a company. It's not solving that problem. It's identifying that problem and just bringing people on board to help you get going in some way, shape or fashion. Excellent. I think people are hopefully already getting a sense of the experience that you have had in business and you've had products sold all over the world in multiple countries across the globe. But I want to get into Gusher now because this is your yeah. newest venture and you have a portfolio of over 350 companies on Gusher. Tell us about Gusher, why there was a problem and why it was needed. So think of it this way. If I ask you what the number one barrier to creating a business is, and you said it earlier, what's the number one barrier to creating a business? You tell me, Gary, or what's the perce- perception anyway? Finance. Yeah. And so there's 700 million people across the globe trying to figure out how to start a business at any point in time. So the number one barrier is money if you ask those people what it is. Okay. And typically, what's that money used for? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, real estate, like if you're doing a real estate deal, I'm not talking about equipment, but what's that number one thing that that money is used for? I feel I'm on the spot now. It depends. It's for people. It's, yeah. It, but I was going to say, it depends it's for how people. good you are. Some, so, some people will use it all on themselves as a wage. Other people yeah. might invest it in other people. But yeah, it is people. It's typically people. All right. So if that's the case, you don't really need money. You need people. So Gusher is a platform to launch companies without the need for capital, without the need for investors. People join companies in exchange for performance based equity. 
So in other words, they don't get a damn thing in the company unless the company is able to achieve its objectives, able to achieve its goals. And that includes us. We're performance-based equity also. So what I say to a founder or anyone across the globe, imagine that you had a million or two million in the bank account right this second. How would you build your company? What would you do? How, what type of team would you have? And then gusher that because we do it all day, every day. Everything from B2B, B2C, B2B2C, consumer goods, manufacturing, SaaS, fintech, AR, VR, AI, gaming, medical device, prop tech, you name it, we've got it. The system works. And so that's what our platform does. It helps people with nothing that don't live in Silicon Valley, New York, Israel, or Ireland's now an extreme hotbed for startups. Uh, go ahead and be able to start a company with nothing but a problem or an idea. That's it. And how are these people sourced then that give input into the company? Well, that's the, that's the key, okay? So there's a way to look at it. So if you're hiring and you've got this bankroll and everything else, what ends up happening is people will join your company, obviously, in exchange for that paycheck. And so it ends up becoming a transactional relationship, a standard relationship where people are working, they're doing it for the paycheck, they're doing it for pay the rent, everything else. With Gusher, it's very, very different. The companies that succeed and succeed fast and greatly are the ones that deal with VIM, V-I-M, what, what's called the vested interest market, okay? What's the vested interest market? I'll give you a quick example. There's a company on our platform called Happy Howl. Happy Howl is run by a founder called Colin Buckley, okay? So Colin had a sick dog. He took it to the vet, and the vet kept saying, put it on this dog food, that dog food, everything else, but the dog kept dying. All right. So this dog kept dying, but Colin decided, hey, I've got to go ahead and save this dog. So he went ahead and hacked together a dog food in his kitchen over two, three, four months. The dog magically came to life over three, four, five months. And he said, hey, I want to start a dog food company. Now, Gary, I don't know what you know about dog food companies, but dog food companies are entrenched behemoths. They've been around for 100 years. Uh, they don't give up territory. They don't give up shelf space. They don't give up market share. It takes a hell of a lot of money to start a successful dog food company, let alone penetrate. So me being who I am, I go, sure, let's go ahead and start a dog food company, okay? So we start this dog food company. He goes ahead and puts it up on Gusher does not listen to me, okay? He goes ahead and brings on this team, teams that have managed, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million dollar budgets, good, you know, PNL people like that have meant Nabisco or Mondelez, whatever the hell it is, uh, McElhaney, Tabasco, products that you know, okay? The company imploded six weeks later. He's finally humbled. He listens to me, okay? He listens to me finally. Puts together another team company takes off like a rocket. It's now valued at more than 10 million. It's growing 30% month over month. Last month, they did 92% growth. They have national distribution, about to go in international distribution, and they've done it with nothing, nothing, okay? So what's the difference between his first team and the second team? It's not a trick question. I want you to think like an eight-year-old. Okay, this is a dog food company. What's the difference between the first team and the second team? Second team all had what? Interest. Would an eight-year-old say that, Gary? <laughs> Would they, an eight-year-old say that? Hmm, interest. I'll give you one more shot. Take a shot. They all had dogs. Beautiful. They all had dogs. See, that's what an eight-year-old would say, okay? They didn't have kids, all right? They were dog parents. They ate dog, breathed dog, lived dog, pooped dog. They were dog zealots, all right? And because they were dog zealots, 
there's a shorthand in the creation of a team. Those are the people that are ready, willing, and able to go ahead and pull that sled up the mountain. Those are the people that get the market. Those are the people that understand what the company and what the product needs to be. So therefore, it leapfrogs generational development when you do that. Instead of an MVP, a minimum viable product, a market viable product is created when you have them, the vested interest market, the people who have the most to gain from the success or failure of the company. And that's the way we build companies. We build them to become self-sustaining from the very beginning. Well, that's fantastic. And then just in terms of equity of a business like that, I mean, you know, if Colin came up with the idea, you know, what sort of holding does he have of the company? Like how much of his shares does he have to give away to have the success he has today? Damn good question. The way to think about it is kind of like, and I don't like to say this, but like venture capital financing. So what we always insist on, and we don't really allow companies to do less than this. We always insist on the founder must retain a minimum, a minimum of 80% of the company to gusher their company, meaning that the team they bring on, our cut, everything else has to be 20% or less. The reason is because if they end up going further rounds and they're growing this company, they're going to end up becoming disincentivized and have an upside down deal. So the minimum uh, minimum they should go ahead and retain is 80%. Most companies are around the 85 to 90%. So people that are coming on, they're there to get that company from point A to point B. It's not meant as a job. It's not meant to be there forever. It's to get that company from this ideation stage to that next stage, that launch stage, the creation to be self-sustaining. And then it's basically just a standard model after that. It's very fair, actually. Right. You know, it is. I, yeah. I know I had visions of poor Collingwood, like maybe 10% at the end of the day. Um, oh, and then having no say and just losing control yeah. and everything. Yeah. No, that's. Well, that's what happens with standard VC funded deals, or if you go down that route a lot of times. I mean, even if a company ends up going public, they're the founder created. I think it's less than 50% of the founders are still with the company. Uh, they get diluted out of existence. But the whole point of when you gusher a company, we won't let you go below that mark because we know what happens. We've seen it before in the early days of the company. We will not allow that to happen at all. Zero, nada. That's brilliant. And I sp- I, like, I love that value that you have, but the reality of it is as well is you need really the person who founded it to be the driving force for the entire lifetime of a company. Absolutely. And and the thing that we find is that, you know, there, there's offsetting philosophies. Something like Y Combinator, they believe in the triumvirate. You know, you have these three founders that all attack it a certain way and everything else. Our philosophy is really the exact opposite. And our thesis is the exact opposite. Uh, our experience is that that founder, the person who originally comes up with that idea that starts that company, does literally 90% of the lifting. Uh, they don't stop. It's their baby. So even if somebody else comes on board, it's never as intense a passion as it is for that founder. And so the founder should go ahead and be compensated correspondingly. I mean, that's the way that we believe it. And so, and it works. It fundamentally works. Yeah. And I suppose that's experience talking there as well, really. Well, it's having learned the hard way. And so we go ahead and hopefully prevent the founders from having to have those same experiences and enable them to have the benefit of what we've done before them. So, and we think it works, you know, and helps them a lot. Is it an exciting time in business at the moment or are things getting a little safe 
and stabilizing, maybe receding a little bit, you think? In what way? What do you mean? With global economics at the moment, and there's so much going on geopolitically, sometimes when there's fear of recession and all that, it's usually during a recession that things fire up again, you know, absolutely and spark the economy again. But sometimes when there's that fear in the air, that's when people kind of pull back a little bit. Well, I mean, for us, it's it's a little bit different. I, I think that when you have a recession or COVID or epidemics or downturns or whatever it may be, you know, that for us anyway, business typically increases dramatically because there's less capital flows to go ahead and fund companies, et cetera. But also the other thing from starting a company, th there's a big difference between having resources and being resourceful. Uh, and having resources doesn't necessarily mean that the creation that you do, the company that you form is going to be good or great or anything else. I mean, the, one of the examples that I always give regarding this is the Wright brothers and flight. You know, the Wright brothers were, you know, two brothers grew up in Dayton, Ohio, running a bicycle shop. And at the time they were trying to figure out flight. Well, what isn't told at the time is that all these governments that were extremely well funded with these massive projects, uh, the best minds in the world, everything else, were trying to do the same damn thing. But did they have the same passion? Did they have the same thing in terms of level of interest and investment as the Wright brothers? No. And guess what? These two little guys from nothing beat the hell out of the world and crushed it. Well, that's the same way to go ahead and view it. There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. I'm an economist by training, an Austrian economist. Uh, but literally what I've learned is that, you know, you've got the business cycles. It comes, it goes. It's part of it. You can't avoid it. Don't avoid the pain. Just go with it and use it. So if someone has an idea, what's the step they need to take to get involved with Gusher? Sure. It, it's very simple. As I said, there's no cost or anything to get started. Uh, you just go ahead and go to gusher.co, G-U-S-H-E-R.co, and you simply log in, create an account, and just start building a startup draft. We'll see you when you does it, and then we just jump in and start helping you. It's as simple as possible. You can take five minutes and create and start building your company and we get you out there or you can take months or, or years to get going. We've had that extreme. Uh, some founders come right in. Other founders take a very long time uh, to get it going. So it's really up to the person. It's just basically logging in and we help you get going. It's as simple as that. And you try and start setting them up with different people on your system then? Not necessarily, not in the beginning stages. So in the beginning stages, they we take them through certain things like they have to have a corporation. It doesn't matter where they're formed or where, excuse me, it doesn't matter where they're located. So for example, we've got about 50, 60% foreign founders, meaning they're outside of the United States, but all the corporations are US-based. It's very easy to set up. We don't do it. Uh, we show them how to do it. They can do it themselves very simply, creating a corporation. But once they have that, then we have a couple different flows or ways of doing it. We have an organic method, which means that, yes, they're going to get flows from Gusher uh, where it goes ahead and these people apply and they see it and they try to join the company and the founder goes ahead and starts speaking with them. We have a different methodology of doing that. Uh, and then there's other ways of doing it that we handle one-on-one, -on -one, what we call whale hunting, kind of like what I did uh, with the low carbohydrate company in the beginning when there wasn't Gusher. So certain things have to be whale hunted. Other things are just based upon natural flows of the system. Excellent. And why a corporation? Is that to just make the whole thing legal and safe and that no one gets burned? 
You well, in a way, but you have to think of it like this. You have to have, if there's an equity share agreement, you have to have equity structure. So in order to do that, you've got to have a corporation. But also with a corporation, typically a lot of these companies end up getting a next financing round. So it's not like they sit there and they, they can make it and they, they have this thing self-sustaining, but a lot of them then attract larger scale capital at the next stage. In order to attract larger scale capital at the next stage, you're going to have to be a corporation. There's no way around it. You can't be an LLC. You can't be a partnership. It's got to be a corporation. And so there's other legal reasons, which I won't go into the nuances of, but there should be a corporation from the very beginning stage. Have you started to see a growth with people looking to get involved in artificial intelligence now? Yes and no. So for our companies that we've seen is a lot of the AI deals that we have on our platform were actually originated or ideated quite a while ago. So the new stuff where they're just skinning, like putting a skin on something and calling it something new. Well, you know, is that AI? Eh, I don't think so. Is it a real value add? Eh, do I think that's part of the bubble that'll keep going until it bursts uh, with bad money flowing after those deals? Yes. Do we have some of those on our platform? I'm sure we do. But most of the, the stuff that's really AI driven is deeper, it requires a deeper level of thought than just a skin. And so, yes, we have seen it, but not the superficial deals really is not what we're dealing with. And what sort of sector then do you see really growing at the moment? Consumer goods is always flying. It's flying out the door. Consumer goods never goes down whatsoever. Uh, we see a lot with materials, uh, a lot with hardcore science that's coming on. We see a lot with platforms. We see a lot with aggregation of different platforms and companies. We see different variants, meaning that, let's say it, it's dating sites. We always see different variants of dating sites come in and out that they're always trying to test different ways of doing it. And sometimes they work big time. So it's just different variants maybe of existing models, but we see a lot of new stuff all the time. It just depends, but not one industry over another. Cool. It must be really exciting. It's cool stuff. Yeah. And then just in terms of getting your message out there, like we were talking about LinkedIn earlier, like it's, again, <laughs> it is that thing with any product marketing and reaching a new audience. Well, the first and, and foremost thing I say to every founder, regardless of the industry and product and whatever they're doing, okay? So if it's an AI company, I say, you're not an AI company. If they're an engineering company, I go, you're not an engineering company. You're not a consumer goods company. I go, first and foremost, you have to remember this. You are a sales and marketing company first and foremost. And because you're a sales and marketing company, that sales and marketing must be put at the very first step of what you're doing before you start creating your company. What do I mean by that? Well, Chris, how the hell do you do something like that? Well, there are methodologies. There are ways of doing it. So what I mean is the following. You, you see all these companies that are always in search of this magical product market fit. They go ahead and create this product. They got this great research. Now they're sitting there going, huh, how the hell do we sell this thing? And they spend six months, a year, years throwing money at it and can't go ahead and penetrate. Okay? So the fact of the matter is that should that action of being able to penetrate the market should be put at the forefront. Let me give you a quick, simple example, okay? So we had an idea. I can't talk about it because it's still under NDA years later, all right, because the product sold a hell of a lot, and then we sold it to a pharma company, all right? So we go ahead, and we had an idea for this de facto medical device 
type of company, okay? And so before we even created it, we had an idea of what we would do and how we would create it. We contacted the main buyers at Target. We contacted the main buyers at Walmart. We contacted the main top retail buyers across the country, and we simply made up this fake one-pager. It wasn't really fake. It talked about it. It had mock-ups, everything else. It looked really legitimate, and we sent it to them. And sure enough, we had all these requests for it to take meetings that were about three months, six months out, nine months out when the category review was. So what we did is we had the green light. We had to go ahead that, yes, there is a very warm market here uh, for what we're doing. So sure enough, in that time, we just created the product very rapidly and had the prototypes and had the MVPs uh, and everything else ready to go. And then it was just scaling up market, uh, scaling up manufacturing after that. So we didn't really have the product. We just tested it. You know, there's other ways to do it. You know, there's things like if you can get an influencer to go ahead and really get what your company's doing. We've had companies that had zero sales one minute and the next minute they had 30,000 in sales on a weekend. They didn't even know where it's coming from. Just from an influencer posting a simple 30 second video to their audience and it launched their company nationally. So, you know, there's ways to do it. Uh, There's always excess capacity out there everywhere in every form of media there is excess capacity. So what that means is you have the ability for revenue share agreements. You have the ability for for some type of affiliate agreement. You have some type of, hey, if you do this, you get a piece of whatever the heck it may be, but you can always do that up until about the $10 million sales volume level. And then if you want to grow bigger than that, that may take a larger scale capital. But to get to 10 million, you need nothing. Zippo, nada. Have you written a book, Chris? I have written a book. I just haven't published it. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Uh, Because my audience isn't that big. I'm going gusher much bigger than my audience. We'll see. Maybe I'll publish it. It's called Deal Rules. I've already got that all trademarked and everything else, but we'll see. Excellent. Let's put that on your bucket list for 2024. I should. I should. It's already written. I just have to press that button and it's done. So I would absolutely love to read it. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure and an amazing education sitting down and chatting to you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And if people want to check out that website, we all have a good idea in us. We just got to sit down and think it out a bit further. Head to the website, gusher.co. 